0: that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed.
2: change. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 26th, 2012. This week episode 261 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and joining us from Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik.
1: Hey Joe, it's a nice Friday day here, glad to be with you and Our audience and guests.
2: Beautiful day in the the berg. And at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V. Val Bender.
0: Hi, everyone.
2: Joining us from Carnegie, Pennsylvania, will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. An interview with Dr. Catherine Oakes and Dr. Louise Fletcher. Hopefully, she'll be able to dial in here in a moment. We've got Dr. Noakes on the line. We're going to talk, a little, they're both from the University of Leeds. We're going to talk today about hospital acquired infections. Of course, we'll have our halftime and get Dr. Wao in for a roundup at the end of the show. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee
3: sponsors Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com.
3: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
2: All right, to listen live, you can, or to download past shows, follow the link from the iaqradio.com website that says go to the show. You can also stream shows directly from our homepage and, of course, download past shows from iTunes. We also have transcripts of past shows available and continuing education credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question.
1: Thanks, Joe. win a cool prize by out fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio Trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations to Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, Mars PA for being first to answer last week's trivia question naming Sir Winston Churchill as the famous statesman who said, quote, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us, unquote. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, October 26, 2012 has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for... Their members for over 30 years. Triska is your source to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question Name the American physician, poet, professor lecturer, author, and important medical reformer who notably posited the controversial idea that doctors were capable of carrying pure peril fever from patient to patient. And his son who bore the same name was a noted American jurist and member of the US Supreme Court. Back to you, Joe.
2: Engineer, Ooh. Gotta turn the mic on. Over. (laughs) Dr. Noakes is the director of Pathogen Control Engineering Institute at the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Leeds. She is also the leader of the Aerobiology and Infection Control Research Group at the university. The Aerobiology and Infection Control Group is a multidisciplinary research team comprising microbiologists, engineers, and mathematical modelers. We're also hoping Dr. Louise Fletcher will be joining us. She is a research fellow in the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Leeds, has eight years postdoctoral experience as an applied microbiologist within the field of pathogen control, and is currently a lead microbiologist. At the uh, PCE group, currently investigating the susceptibility of nosocomial pathogens to negative air ions, and let's see if we have some music for the our guests. Uh, looks like we do have Dr. Uh, Fletcher to get around.
0: Is anyone here?
2: <coughs> Germs are everywhere
1: on everything. <sighs>
2: Fight back with soap. <laughs> Fight back with soap. All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have Doctor Noakes on the line? Yes, you do. Great. Thank you for joining us. and Dr. F- Good
0: afternoon.
2: <laughs> Doctor Fletcher, do we get you in? I can
0: hear you. Yes, I'm here. Yes.
2: Okay, you are there. Um, you, but I am yes. Can you hear us now?
0: I can. Yes, it's a bit muffled, but I can hear you. Yes.
2: Okay. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's uh, let's start with Doctor Noakes. In your signature from your email, I noticed at the the bottom it said reader in infection control. What is a reader in infection control?
0: (laughs) Okay, Joe. That's um, a reader, a title that's very kind of peculiar to the British academic system. Um, So in in the U.S. you have um, associate professors and full professors. Uh, A reader sits between the two of those. Um, and a bit like a professor, a reader has a title that's very specific to the research you do, hence the infection control engineering bit. Does that make sense? Uh, it
2: does. That, that helps a lot. Now, you, you also, uh, and I noticed in your in your resume or your, your CV, you're on the editorial board of the Indoor and Built Environment Journal. I, I checked their website out real quick, but I would uh, like, if you could, to tell our listeners a little bit about that journal.
0: Okay, yeah. It's um, an international journal, um, so it attracts research from researchers in indoor air and buildings all around the world. Uh, it covers anything linked to really quality of the indoor and built environment. So considers, for example, how the buildings might affect health, might affect occupant performance, might affect the efficiency in the building, comfort, etc. cetera. Um, it covers urban infrastructure, covers building design, covers materials. And then covered through to um, experimental studies on indoor air, airflow simulation, health effects, the whole thing.
2: Okay. And and Dr. Fletcher, I'd like to ask if, if I could... What is your position at the university? I I had a little introduction for you there, but maybe you could explain a little more for our listeners how you fit into the overall uh, setup there at the university and the uh, group in particular, the, let's see if I got it right, uh, Aerobiology and Infection Control Research Group.
0: Um, Yes. My role at the university is as a lecturer. I'm a lecturer in environmental engineering, uh, which covers a whole host of different things, My particular expertise is environmental microbiology. Um, So I cover sort of how microorganisms occur in the air, how they generate and how they move around and how they contaminate surfaces. So that's my area of expertise. I also cross over into other research areas, including solid waste management and wastewater treatment um, and disposal. So I cover sort of the broad area. In terms of the research group, um, CAF heads the research group, so it might be better for CAF to actually explain to you how the research group works. let's do that. Uh,
2: Dr. Noakes, how how does this research group work?
0: Yeah, okay, so our group, um, we've existed all about 12 years now. Um, We we are based in the School of Civil Engineering, so although we're looking at infection control, it comes from a very engineering-focused perspective. Actually, the group originated because our department has a very long history of public health engineering and has always had its own microbiology facilities, so the indoor air work was a kind of natural extension from that. Um, We started from a building services type perspective, but linking with that microbiology so we can link air and the microbial side of things together. Um, These days we're pretty well established. Um, I'm originally a mechanical engineer have a flow modeling background, building services background. Um, So Louise, as she said, is environmental microbiology. We also have another academic colleague, Dr. Andy Slee, who um, comes from a fluid dynamics background. And then we have researchers who work with us. So we have three postdoctoral researchers currently and five PhD students at the moment. And they're working on a whole range of different things. Some of them are are based modeling side of things. Some of them are, are experimental. Others cross between the two areas.
1: Sure. Let's talk a little bit about how your group studies transmission of hospital-acquired infections. Can you touch a little on the key interests in areas that you're researching, or pick highlights, your choice?
0: Okay. um, uh, If I start by talking, telling you something about the hospital ventilation and modeling side of things, and then perhaps Louise can touch on some of the more experimental work that we do. Perfect. Um. Okay, so my main interest is healthcare ventilation. So I'm interested in the, the relationship between airflow and contaminants and how we can use, for example, particularly modelling techniques to be able to understand how we can determine the risk of infection and how we can actually maybe determine a better design for a building. Um, particular highlight at the moment is I'm running a very big project. It's a five-year project on um, healthcare ventilation that supports um, three researchers and three PhD students looking at a whole range of different things. Um, so a couple of the highlights on that one, um, we did quite a lot of work recently looking at a very large naturally ventilated nightingale ward, so a very traditional hospital ward, and we were looking at using um, gas tracers and computational models to explore where contaminants might go and how factors such as whether you've got the windows open or closed and how you put, lay out the ward, how that affects um, your risk of infection and how well the building is ventilated. Um, we're hoping we're going to publish that work very, very soon. Uh, but the main finding from that one was uh, if it, if it was a naturally ventilated ward to keep the windows open. Um, we also, I mentioned modelling. We do something called computational fluid dynamics modelling. So this is a technique where we can use a computer simulation to predict things like the velocity of the air, the pressure of the air, the temperature, and where a contaminant is in a room. Um, We do an awful lot of this work some of it's pretty high-level advanced um, with, you know, a very high-performance computer. But we've also been doing recently some stuff about modeling in real time, um, which is really quite cool. Um, we can actually model flow patterns in a room, and you can watch them move in real time. So we're hoping that we can develop that further to be able to understand and show people exactly what happens to air in their rooms. So you have, um,
2: you have an, a... a a mock-up, essentially, of a hospital room, and then you you perform different um, experiments, research projects within that particular area in the in the uh, building.
0: Alright, uh, yeah, Andrew, look, Louise, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, as Cass said, Cass he's involved in the sort of the modelling side of it, and I'm more involved in the experimental side. And sometimes the work that we do the experimental work that we do complements or validates some of the uh, modeling work, but sometimes the experiments are sort of standalone. Um, So we've been involved in quite a a, a large range of uh, research projects looking at particularly indoor air quality and bioaerosols. Some of the work that we do involves sort of laboratory-scale, small-scale experiments. Um, So we've used some very small-scale sort of experimental rigs to look at things like microorganisms susceptibility to things like UV and, say, negative air ions. Um, we've then done sort of larger-scale experiments in our aerobiological chamber, which we might talk about a little bit later. Um, again, looking at the susceptibility of microorganisms to certain air treatments, Um, It might be air ions, it might be UV, ozone, things like that. And also more generally looking at the survival of microorganisms and where they move in in the room, um, where they settle out. Um, And that's quite important when you're looking at um, air contamination and how that might affect surface contamination. So you're looking at the settlement of microorganisms onto surfaces. Um, We've also been involved in, um, experimentally, in on-site sampling. Um, and that will include hospitals. Um, we've looked at things like the influence of activities in hospitals and how that affects the airborne concentration of microorganisms. So that might be things like bed-making activities. It might be uh, ward rounds. It might be visitors. Um, and then other things like um, clinical procedures, so it might be looking at the use of nebulizers on respiration on respiratory wards. So we've also looked at sort of doing air sampling and surface sampling to look at the impact of... of um, Different activities. Uh, we've done a few very large projects over the past few years looking at, in particular, we did one looking at negative air ions and the effectiveness of devices that produce air ions on, in this case, it was um, infection rates in an intensive care unit. Um, so we were looking at uh, what happens to the concentration of, uh, of microorganisms in the air and also what happens in terms of the number of infections that people are getting. And we did a, a sort of clinical trial looking at uh, without the devices and then again for a six-month period looking at them with the devices to see if there was any um, added advantage from having the ionizer devices. Uh, and again, on a slightly different note, like the other bit of what I do, we've also been involved in looking at studies on outdoor uh, environment. So for me in particular, I've looked at um, the generation and survival of bioaerosols with uh, a waste management context. So looking at things like composting facilities and wastewater treatment facilities and how they produce bioaerosols and how they move around in the environment outside, which in the UK can be a big issue. Uh, we have quite a lot of... Um, legislation for biolocal production at waste management facilities and things like that. So we've done full-scale, we've done on-site, off-site, uh, and we've also done laboratory-scale studies as well.
2: Interesting. Doc, Dr. Noakes, I I wanted to ask, just to kind of give the listeners an idea with respect to the types of facilities in uh, the U.K. versus, you know, the rest of the world with respect to hospitals. Are they, you know, are they... Typical, similar to what you would find worldwide. I know hospitals vary tremendously, but uh, maybe you could describe the typical hospital room.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think as you say, uh, in the world, there's a lot of variation, and just like the US, those yeah, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, surprisingly, though, things like a, a hospital room, they they are perhaps more more similar than you might think. They, you know, because they all a similar size they all tend to have the same set of furniture in them. Um, I guess the real difference between the UK and the US is in the ventilation. So in the US, I believe, hospitals are all um, mechanical forced ventilation, um, although the air can be recirculated back through filters. In the UK, we, if it is... Mechanically ventilated; it has to be full fresh air, so there's no recirculation of air. But we do allow naturally ventilated hospital wards in the UK. Yes. So there's quite a difference in design there.
2: And that's just in the the rooms, or the entire facility? You get your operating rooms, etc. Um,
0: that's the that's the the wards, the operating um, operating theatres, isolation rooms. Um, it's very, very unlikely it would be naturally ventilated um, and there are you do have to follow the Department of Health guidance on air change rate, airflow patterns, etc so that's really going to force you down a mechanical ventilation route there
2: Okay, and, and do
0: they
1: use Go I've got a question it's kind of a follow up mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you mentioned that in the UK you have both uh, naturally ventilated um, hospital rooms, and then you have the the, the forced ventilated. Mm-hmm. Um, can you draw a difference? Is you know from looking at both, is, is does one uh, have a better result with uh, hospital acquired infections?
0: It's impossible to say, to be honest. Um, what one of the real difficulties with... Any, any of um, any of the work looking at hospital quiet infections is that although the, he- the, the infections make the headlines, the real numbers are actually quite small. And so if you go into a hospital and you change something, let's say you change the ventilation system, the chances are that the numbers of infections will be so small that you couldn't really prove one way or the other you'd made a, a real difference. Um, so really, ventilation apart from high risk environments so where you've got say immunocompromised patients or infectious diseases, most hospital environments it's going to be driven more by the comfort of the people and the local environment outside. I mean city centre in, in London would probably have a mechanical ventilation, but some of the more rural areas would, would have the natural ventilation.
2: Okay, thank you. You know, Dr. Fletcher, I I just happened to be out last night with a friend and his wife, and she is infection control officer, whatever her title is, at a a hospital here in in the U.S., and Mm -hmm. we were talking a little bit about, you know, what we know works and what we think works and and what we're pretty sure does not work, And, and she gave me the impression that, Unfortunately, a lot of what they are doing right now is not necessarily something that has been studied extensively, and I think that's what your group gets at, is you're trying to extensively study these things and make sure that what we think works does work. Can you give us an example of things we do know work with respect to lowering the transmission of hospital-acquired infections?
0: Um, I think uh, one of the things that has been studied quite extensively um, that we know does work, and that's that's hand hygiene. Um, In terms of controlling infections, hand hygiene is one of the definites that we know does work. Um, And in the UK, UK, there's been a a huge campaign over the past few years about hand hygiene. Um, And I think in the UK, we are actually seeing vast improvements in the amount of hand washing that's going on, particularly in clinical environments, and the infection rates. Um, and the other thing that, that we know works is ventilation. Um, if you've got good ventilation, um, you will get a reduction in infection rates, and that's particularly true in places like um, operating theatres. Um, so we know that ventilation works. In terms of sort of technologies, Um, I think probably one of the ones that's been studied the most, that we can say, well, yes, the technology works because we know the mechanisms, is UV. Um, And we do have clinical evidence that UV does reduce, um, A, the amount of microorganisms that you've got within surfaces and air, but also reduces the infection risk. Because one of the things that you have a problem with when you're doing sort of clinical things is that it depends on what you measure as to whether it works. We can measure things like airborne concentrations of microorganisms and we can say yes that works but if the clinician then doesn't see a comparative reduction in the infection rate then they would say it doesn't work so again it depends on what you measure as to whether you say something works or doesn't but certainly hand hygiene and ventilation do and uh, some of the uv technologies we know do work
2: It's interesting, and Dr. Fletcher, maybe you can follow up on this. Uh, She brought up, she was at a recent conference, uh, my friend, and she said that there was a vendor there who was selling UV. And they were selling it as a a mechanism for helping in cleaning rooms when the room was turned over to another uh, patient. You know, after, I forget what she called that type of cleaning. Do any of you know off the top of your head what they call that? Is it terminal?
0: Um Terminal. yeah, I mean, this. I mean, we might touch on this when we talk about how how we test devices and things. But there was a difference between um, what you would do if you were going to clean an occupied room and what you would do in a case like that where you are you've had an incident, there, there is a contaminated room, and then you want to decontaminate that room, ready for somebody else to go in. The technologies that you can use in the second case, when you've got an unoccupied room. Um, can be much more effective because you're not having to worry about people within the room being affected by the technology, say UV or um, ozone and things like that, for example. So certainly UV and ozone and hydrogen peroxide in a situation where you've got an empty room and you can basically flood the room with a biocide and antibacterial uh, agents will work very, very well. No. But you wouldn't want to do that if it was a room that was occupied.
2: And I think she used daily cleaning and terminal cleaning to describe the difference between yeah, the two. Yeah, okay.
0: yeah there's there is a difference between the routine cleaning that you do while somebody's there and then this sort of uh, very intense cleaning when you're changing the use of the room or when you're moving one patient into a room that's been occupied by somebody else. Cliff, do you have a
2: follow-up on that?
1: No, no, I don't.
2: Now, she also mentioned, and this is a difficulty that I kind of didn't really think about it until after talking uh, to her last night one of the concerns with the uv system is the time it takes before you actually get the disinfection of the room and she felt like you know we've got to turn these rooms over very quickly i mean hospitals have to make money the, the way and this is in the u.s now i don't know if it's the same in the uk but it's like a hotel room if nobody's in there you're not making money on it and her concern was the amount of time it took for this particular product to actually do the disinfection. Can you comment on that, Dr. Fletcher, how quickly UV can be used to help turn a room around?
0: I suppose it depends on the device that you're using, how you're deploying the technology, really, because if you want to disinfect a room, so that includes disinfecting the air, disinfecting the surfaces, then basically you've got to flood the room with whatever technology. Flooding the room with UV might be quite difficult because... It's directional, uh, and if you, unless you've got a device that will that's got very high intensity UV and will basically flood the room with that UV, then you are going to be looking at quite some time for for organisms to die. If you look at the UV susceptibility of a lot of microorganisms, things like Staphylococcus aureus, um, Clostridium difficile, they are very susceptible to UV, and if they're in the direct contact with UV, they will die very very quickly. But I think the difficulty with the whole room disinfection is is getting the UV to all parts of the room in a very, very short space of time. So if you do need to turn over the room in a very short space of time, then it might be better to use something like hydrogen peroxide or ozone that you can very quickly flood the room with it, clear the room, and then get the room back into use. So there are limitations with UV in terms of disinfecting whole rooms.
2: Okay, that's uh, and- Dr. Noakes, I I had a quick question because I mentioned the difference between the UK and the US. I'm curious, how is your research funded?
0: How is the research funded? Um, Okay, most of what we do is funded through um, UK Research Council, so that's the UK government. Um, There is a research council called Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, and they are actually our main funder at the moment. Um, we've also had funding directly from government through the Department of Health. Um, we do get some industry funding, um, particularly in sort of device testing. Uh, we actually have some of your money at the moment as well. We have a, a, a CDC project with the University of Nottingham and some U.S. collaborators at Maryland and Wake Forest. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm just
2: curious, Are you, is your group somewhat unique worldwide or are there a lot of these groups worldwide I just don't know about them
0: um in the UK we are pretty unique because we to actually bring together the mathematical modeling the experimental and they in a the laboratory to have a chamber they're, they're pretty rare and to go and do hospital sampling and to do all of that in one group is pretty rare. Uh, there are a handful of groups around the world who probably, we would say, I wouldn't say compete with us, but uh, are, are similar. Um, Harvard School of Public Health, they have a chamber similar to ours, although they don't do so much of the mathematical modelling side of things. Um, the group at Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, again, they have a biological chamber. And there's uh, groups in Hong Kong, for example, who, who again, work in this field. Uh, there's also groups in Denmark, although they don't tend to have the biological facilities they're more interested in, surrogates, so tracer gases instead of um, um, biological aerosols. Okay. So, yeah, we are pretty unique. Uh, well, and I, that's
2: what I, I thought, but I wasn't positive. Now, now, Dr. Fletcher, I want to continue along with the, the line of what works, what, what we think works, etc.
0: <laughs>
2: we mm-hmm. I'm curious about what what we know works. We talked a little bit about what do we think works, but we really haven't shown through research for certain that it works. And I want to give an example, Uh, single occupancy versus double occupancy rooms. I mean, my understanding is we think that works. We're not 100% certain, but obviously you'll know better than me.
0: That's probably one for CAF, actually, because I'm more more in terms of technologies and engineering. CAF um, would probably know more about um, the organisation of rooms and things like that. So I don't know whether CAF wants to say something about double occupancy as opposed to single occupancy rooms. Yeah, I can comment on that. I mean, anything, anything like layout of a room is very, very difficult to prove. You know, you think that the, the layout is going to improve something, so you place a sink somewhere. Mayn't be more accessible. You know it's going to improve hand hygiene, but you cannot get conclusive proof because it's it's mixed up in a whole bunch of other things. And the same with single versus multi bed. Um, you you know you, you 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 sort of common sense tells you that it is going to reduce infections, um, but it's very hard to say exactly why because because these infections are just spread by hand contact and. the the staff and the patients wash their hands effectively, well, in theory, there should be no difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, this really quite nicely brings us to the research article we recently published, which I know was the reason why you got in touch with it in the first place. Um, The PhD student who's been working on that, that's actually the topic of his PhD, which is to look at, is a single room better than a multi-bedroom from an infection point of view? And to try to quantify it. And what he's really interested in is this whole environmental contamination. So, whether, how, if things are are released in the environment, where do they land? How does it contaminate that room? And how do, as people then possibly then go and touch those surfaces, how does it increase the risk? And actually, he can, he's been doing some models which allows him as well as doing some experimental work to look at a single versus a a double bed environment. He's been doing some um, infection risk mathematical models which allow looking at where um, people touch and how frequently they touch and to be able to quantify the difference between a single bed and a multi bed room. So we can't quite answer that question yet. We hope within the next six months we might be able okay. to um, at least have some better evidence. Whether we would ever be able to fully quantify it, I doubt, but at least we might have some better evidence to say why might it be better and just how much better.
2: Okay. Well, let me, let me do this. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that subject. I also want to talk to Dr. Fletcher a little bit more about the different Mechanisms used or, or um, products used for cleaning, but we've got to take a quick break here and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in about 90 seconds. Yeah. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
3: The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
2: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers. To provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit
3: them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com.
3: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
2: All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes with the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. We're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Catherine Oaks and Dr. Louise Fletcher from the University of Leeds. Great stuff in the first half. There was one question I wanted to throw out to either one of you before we get into the specific research and um, some of Dr. Fletcher's uh, research on on things that work in in the uh, infection control arena. But my co-host has this um, fascination with, and I think rightfully so, what we call made-up stuff. And, um, you know, in, in our industry, a lot of times things will get kind of, repeated over and over, and there's really no basis in research or science uh, background to show that the stuff is actually accurate. Are there any examples you can give us of things that are kind of been passed down over the years in infection control that really don't have any basis in science?
0: Oh, okay. Um. um, yeah. <laughs> um I would say that um, there's a lot of technology out there these days that promises a great deal. Oh, yeah. And I know Louise can comment on some of this. Um, we have no end of people who promises that they have the, the, the best machine that you've ever seen in the world. Um, it, it You know, it's it's going to be the solution to every problem. What you actually find is that many of these machines actually, yeah, they are effective at killing bugs. The bugs will go through them. But then you put it in a real room and you've got to persuade the air in the room to go through that. And that doesn't always work. Um, You know, you can't persuade air from one side of the room necessarily to go to the other side of the room and pass through the device. So, yeah, some of the perhaps claims that are made... um, and not necessarily borne out by the research. Um, okay. I yeah. suspect Louise can tell you an awful lot more about that. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Fletcher. Could
2: you comment on that? Because that—that's something our listeners get bombarded, as you do, with people claiming this this product does X, Y, and Z, and it's a miracle product. And if you buy it, you won't have to scrub anything again. You know? Can you comment on that?
0: Well, as, as Kath says, I mean, certainly we we get lots and lots of phone calls. We've, we've tested a lot of devices, um, some of them sort of fairly big devices, some fairly small. And the majority of manufacturers will come to us with a device that's where they've had the technology within the device tested using a certain testing procedure where it, it's very controlled. You put a microorganism in contact with the technology and it will kill it. You then put that technology into a box with a fan and say, this is fantastic, it will work, it will fit in your room and it will reduce the concentration of uh, microorganisms in the air, for example. And like I said, it does if that microorganism that's in the air passes through the machine. But the majority of the air inside a room is not going to pass through that machine. So although what they're saying is true, the technology within the device does work, the device as a standalone device that's intended to be used in somebody's lounge is not effective because it, it's not getting the microorganisms from the room into the device. We do have other devices that don't rely on air going through the room and actually emit things into the room, which are slightly more effective. Um, but it's also, it, 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 again, it depends on what you call it works If you think, well, yeah, reducing the concentration of microorganisms in the air by 50% works, if that doesn't have an impact on children being sick or children's asthma or things like that, then you would say the technology doesn't work because it's not, although it's reducing the concentration, if that has no impact on people's health then you would say, well, no, that doesn't work. So, again, it depends on on what you measure and how you measure as to whether something is described as working or not working. And we've seen that with a few of our devices that, under very controlled conditions, yes, they probably do, but when you put them into a real scenario, then the effect is limited. Uh, And we've found that with quite a lot of devices that we've looked at.
2: leads us nicely into the research that got our attention. The paper was called Airborne Superbugs Elude Hospital Cleaning Regimes. I shouldn't say the paper was called. The article I picked it up from was called that. And that's my first question, Dr. Nooks. Airborne Superbugs Elude Hospital Cleaning Regimes. Is that a good title for the article that's trying to describe your paper or your your
0: group? Uh, It's probably not the best title, no. It's um, There's some truth in it, because the research that we did does show that if um, airborne microorganisms are released, they can contaminate surfaces far away from the source. Um, But it is, I would say, somewhat exaggerated, because we didn't go so far, and we can't go so far as to say that actually it is a major infection risk. So... Yeah, um, I think that's called media exaggeration.
2: Well, you know, maybe you could comment on this for me. It's something that I see in the remediation cleaning industry, and, um, you know, I've I've had comments about this, and I'm I'm curious. There's some concerns, and I think rightfully so, but you can confirm that when you're using, for instance, an air scrubber in a room, Okay, and now let's say you have an air filtration device that's got a HEPA filter, high-efficiency particulate air filter, and you're trying to just scrub the air of particulate. That placing that machine in the middle of the room isn't necessarily going to effectively clean all the air in the room, that there's going to be corners and et cetera that don't get cleaned very well. Is that accurate to say?
0: That is true, yes um it it all depends on what the situation is that you're looking at so um and, and what the risk is so yes if you do put a device in a room and it pulls air through it it won't necessarily pull air from all of the room what you want to try and do is you if you are going to use a device like that is to position it so that it has the best chance of reducing contamination, and of course the highest point of contamination is close to the source. So let's say you have a patient in a hospital room who you suspect might be infectious. They might have, you know, they might have a respiratory infection, they might have MRSA which could maybe contaminate their, their, their local environment. Putting some device close to that person is going to probably have a much much better chance of cleaning the air. Then positioning it the other side of the room um, because there's, there's always going to be higher concentrations nearer the source. Um, one of the things that always that you always have to consider is that the source in most hospitals the source is in the room. Um, okay, so um, some devices, some approaches focus on supplying very clean air to the room, but of course, if you are standing next to a person who is infectious, the fact that the air coming out the vent in the ceiling is super clean is really of no consequence when you're next to the source. So understanding that relationship between a source, where it goes in a room, and then where best to position devices or how best to control is yeah, it's a key, thing, key element of what we do. And Cliff, did you have a follow-up on that?
1: I don't know it's kind of a it's kind of a strange follow up but you know it it seems that the the shape of hospital rooms is always the same you know, the, these rooms are either uh, square or semi-square, you know, in, yeah. in in terms of shape. And, you know, what happens is that I think because of that, you know, you end up having corners and you end up having cracks and crevices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's almost, and I know that this is going to sound very, very strange, but it's almost as though a round room, a round-shaped room might, uh, and, and I just wondered whether that was ever studied, just changing the shape Oh,
0: I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think there's in, in all of these situations there's a. I suppose a, a cost benefit or a risk versus reward that you have to do, and in most in the, most hospital environments, despite what the papers will tell you, what the media will tell you, they are not that dangerous. So in most hospital environments, yes, there are some risks, but it's only worth investing in control technology to a certain level um, because the risk in most cases isn't so great as we want to invest in anything higher than that. Um, yeah, I mean, say, for example, a round room, yes, you wouldn't get the corners and you wouldn't get those stagnant areas, but actually, even in a square room, um, if, if it's well-designed, if the, particularly the ventilation is well-designed, then you can effectively ventilate that. And people move in environments all the time. There's always movement. So things will get – those stagnant corners will get flushed out over time, providing there's good cleaning. Anything that deposits out will get cleaned up. Um, so, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm I'm quite a strong advocate for ventilation because I think – there is a danger out there that there's a lot of technology on the market and people will perhaps go for that over-ventilation. And at the end at the end of the day, I think good ventilation is an absolute must. And then technologies can reduce the risk further under certain situations.
2: Dr. Nooks, is there an ideal setup for when you're mechanically ventilating? Um, do you want to bring your your air in low and exhausted high? Do you want to bring it in high and exhaust it low? Do you want to keep it in the middle? Can you comment on that?
0: Um, I think at the moment we don't know what the ideal is yet. Um, what we do know is that um, if it's a mixed ventilation system, so where you're looking to mix the air in the room, that it should be designed to promote as be- good a uniform mixing as you possibly can. So, an example is we did a research project um, a couple of years ago with um, collaborators in the UK, uh, the Department of Health, and uh, an organisation called BizRia, And we were looking at an isolation room, so we're looking at a new design of isolation room, and what the um, to prove that the airflow's worked in this room. Now, isolation rooms is normally you have a pressure difference to the outside. With it between the room and the outside, so normally it'd be a negative pressure. Um, and everybody knows that isolation rooms are have a pressure difference, but nobody thinks much about the air in the room itself, because you kind of think that well the patient's in there, they're infectious, so hey, we'll forget about them. But if you think about it, the nurses have to go in there; they have to go and deal with that patient. So one of the things that we focused on there was also looking at what does the air in the room do. And we wanted to prove, and we could could prove this, we could show it, that the air in that room was as far as possible, what you call fully mixed, so all uniform in there. And that would mean that if you could then determine what an infection risk might be for that room, and that risk would be the same, pretty much the same everywhere in that room. So it wouldn't matter whether you stood on the left-hand side of the bed or the right-hand side of the bed, the risk would be the same. And so, and, and by knowing that, you know that you can quantify it. You know that you've you've done your best um, to do that. However, in terms of other approaches, it may be that there are better ways of doing it. It may be putting air in low, taking out high. Um, if you think of operating theaters, operating theaters often have a downflow system where it comes in high and have a... They call it a laminar downflow, so a flow that goes down over the over the patient on the operating table to take away contaminants. Um, it's very effective, but also it does cost. It costs a lot of energy. It costs a lot of money to run. So there's always a trade-off in every environment. Um, there's just some examples there of things that do work. We're
2: running a little short. I've got a whole list of questions here, and I want to make sure Cliff. Are, are there any in particular you want to make sure we get to on this?
1: Uh, um, Mine are more on the control techniques and, and things like that. That's probably where my greatest.
2: Well, let me get one uh, more there on the on the research project, and then we'll go to that and, and finish up with that. What were the key results from this research project about airborne? The one that was <laughs> titled at least in the okay. article. Yes. Yeah.
0: So this is a project um, my PhD student did, a guy called Marco Philippe King, and he's found three things from this project. He found... He basically released particles in, a, in our bioaerosol chamber and he set it up to mimic either a single-bed hospital room or a two-bed hospital room. And he found that the biological particles, first of all, he found that they settled everywhere in the room. And there wasn't really a relationship between distance from the source. So he found that you know, these particles would contaminate surfaces quite a long way from the source. He also found that he was able to model this. He was able to develop a computer model to be able to accurately predict where these particles would go and get an accurate map of the room in terms of deposition. And that's really important because that means he can then use this to look at design. And then the third thing we found was that there was some dependence on ventilation and layout, and in particular, putting a partition between two beds was... um, actually reduce the contamination. Um, partitions are used quite a lot. We use curtains in hospitals, but they're usually used for privacy rather than infection control. And I think there's quite a lot of increasing evidence that they have quite a significant infection control benefit, and we should think better about how we design those partitions between beds in multi-bed spaces.
2: That's interesting. All right, Cliff, do you, you want to get with one with Dr. Fletcher on the technologies?
1: Yeah, I, I, I did, um, and you know, as we have limited time, um, mm-hmm. if you could tell us which of the technologies uh, you find uh, most promising.
0: Um, it's quite a difficult one to answer, really, because they've all got their pros and cons, really. Um, okay. One of the things to say is, is how you test them, and um, one of the really, really important things when you're looking at these technologies is how you test them, and how you test them will depend on their use. Um, so at the University of Leeds we have a facility that we use for testing which is just um, a a chamber and as I said before the majority of people come to us with the devices that have been uh, what we call single pass test so they've taken their technology, they've put it into a a piece of apparatus put microorganisms at one end, collected them at the other end to see how many died And, and that's what people tend to come to us with And they will come to us and they will say, oh, our device kills 99.9% of of the organisms. And and in that scenario, it probably does. Um, But then when they come to us, they want to have a look at how a device will perform in a real room, which is what we are set up to do. Um, And again, like I say, it depends on how uh, a technology is supposed to be um, deployed. So something like um, a device, like a fogging device uh, that we touched on earlier, where you would – um, fill an unoccupied room with, um, say, hydrogen peroxide or um, ozone, for example, um, then what we'd probably do with that is we would test it using a decay test where an episode has happened, you've got a contaminated room, and then you want to um, look at how a device will clear that room and clean that room ready for use elsewhere. Um And in that situation, they tend to produce high concentrations of, say, hydrogen peroxide or ozone or whatever you're looking at. And they're unsuitable for spaces that have been occupied. Um, And we've tested a few devices of that type, um, particularly ones that generate um, ozone. Um, And they do work very, very well, which is what you would expect, because just something like ozone is a huge antimicrobial um, biocide Um, And we found that in this particular situation, you can get in excess of 90% reduction. So something like that does work. Your big machines that do sort of clearing do work. Um, We've looked at hydrogen peroxide, but not in um, such high concentrations, um, in much, much lower concentrations. And because the concentration is lower, they tend not to work as well. So I don't think there's any doubt that that a a high-powered machine like that will work. I think what's more interesting is the other devices, the sort of devices that they are intended for domestic use or maybe clinical use, where they're there all the time and they're to be used in a room that's occupied. Excuse me. And in, in that case, we would tend to do what we call a steady state. So there's no standard method for testing these devices, which is what makes the situation worse a little bit, I think, because there's no standardization. So you can't say, well, that device compared to that device. And you can't compare them because they've not all been tested in the same way. But with a device that's intended to be used in, say, an occupied room, or it might be a hospital ward or somebody's home, then what we would do would be a steady-state test where the contamination is happening all the time because it's coming from the occupants in the room. So the device, we want to see how the device performs when you've got this continuous contamination going on. Um, and we've done a lot of work on that with different devices. So we've looked at UV devices, um, and we've looked at standalone devices, which are sort of little inbox units, and we've also looked at uh, meso-induct uh, devices and a little bit of uh, upper room UV devices. Um, and as we said before, it's a well-established technology. Uh, we know it kills microorganisms, and we know the, 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 the method um, very, very um, well. Um, there's a lot in the literature about um, experimental work looking at UV and UV susceptibilities. There are lots of UV susceptibilities for various microorganisms quoted in the literature. Um, so the the ability of UV to kill microorganisms is not in doubt. It, it's how you use it. Um, so for example, little standalone devices we have tested those, but we come back to the same issue that if you are putting a technology in a box, it's how you get the microorganisms to go through that box and be killed. Um, but we we have tested them and we've got very very good um, in some cases good um, kills with uh, UV devices. Because that's what Cass said about where you put the device as well. Some devices, if you have uh, the inlet of the device very close to the source, then they're going to perform better than the wood is or we the side of the room. So there's lots of variables that are going on. Um, we have looked at upper room UV devices, which are probably less um, less used in, in domestic homes. They're not sort of intended for domestic homes; they're intended for clinical use and, and various other places. Um, and that's where you've got a um, a zone of UV up near the ceiling in a room. Um, And again, you're reliant on passing microorganisms through that UV field. Um, And we've got very good performances with upper room UV, particularly where you've got uh, good air movements within the room, whether you've got a fan in the room. Um, But they can perform very, very well, and we have done um, quite a lot of work on those. But there is a safety issue as to how you deploy them, and you've got to make sure that people in the room are not exposed to them. So we know that UV works. UV is a good thing. Um, The other thing that we've done quite a lot of work on is negative air ions. Um, And there are lots and lots of manufacturers at the moment who are producing devices that um, produce negative air ions. And one of the benefits of these devices is that they actually don't rely on something going through the box. They actually emit ions into the room. So it's as if they're using the whole room as their sort of reactor so they can get to places that maybe something like a UV device can't. So they act a little bit like a fogging device, but they're producing something that's slightly safer. Um, And there are lots of claims. Some people say that they destroy all the microorganisms in the air. Uh, And in terms of air ions, you're looking at a physical deposition, you're looking at electrostatic precipitation, but also a biocidal effect, which it hasn't really been definitely... um, shown in the literature that it actually works. Um, So there is quite a lot of debate on iron concentrations and whether they actually produce a biocidal effect. We've evaluated a lot of them, um, and with some of them we've got some very, very, very good um, performance data. Um, Some of them less so, you get something like 20% reduction, right up to in excess of 80% reduction. So in some cases they do work. Um, One of the things that we have found which was quite shocking Um, is that, and this comes back to not having a a standardized sort of testing procedure, is recently we tested a lot of devices, uh, ionizer devices, that have been produced by very, very big manufacturers, international manufacturers. And one of the first things we do is measure the ions. So we measure the ions to see how many they're producing, to see what the concentration's like. And we were shocked that more than 50% of the devices that we actually tested produced no ions at all. Hmm. There and subsequently, we found the performance wasn't very good. Um, but that was a big shock to us that these devices that are actually being sold as ionizers are, are not producing any measurable ions at all, even very, very close to the outlet. But your normal um, consumer wouldn't be able to measure them and would never know.
4: Wow. So and it,
0: that it's quite was shocking.
1: Titanium dioxide.
0: We haven't done any work on titanium dioxide. I mean, we're, we're aware of it because we are aware of how you can um, sort of use it in conjunction with UV. Um, but we haven't um, done any work in particular on sort of photorecti- uh, photocatalytic oxidation or anything like that. Um, but we are aware of it, but it's not something that sort of we've actively done in the research that we've been doing.
2: Okay. We are getting real close to the end. We can stay a little longer if you two are able to stick around. We don't have any requirement to quit at a certain time, but I would like to bring Dr. Wow in just for a couple quick comments and then ask one final question. Can you hang in there another five minutes? Yes, fine.
0: Yeah, a okay.
2: five minutes. Thank you. Okay, let's go to Roundup. Move a on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on hit him up, raw high. Right, I'm
0: in Rome. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Rome, Rome, Rome.
2: Yeah. Rome. All right, Doctor Dietrich Wild. We have his music. There we go. All right, Dieter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Comments?
4: Oh, well, yes, absolutely. (laughs) First of all, congratulations to Andy. I worked with him on Monday this week. (laughs) But he won again. Anyway, I I think there were a couple of very interesting and very difficult uh, topics. Uh, Dr. Fletcher mentioned that. I mentioned, I'm very much interested in, well, in aerosols and including aerobiology. I'm interested in anything that is in the air and I know how to measure them one way or another. And um, I I think there are a couple of excellent uh, comments uh, which were made. I solved a lot of problems in building air by working on the ventilation system, and we heard that before, and of course it makes sense, but it is difficult, and it is not very easy. You can design something beautifully, and now somebody opens windows and doors, and what you designed all of a sudden doesn't hold anymore. The other thing is, and it is incredibly difficult, uh, to do yeah, epidemiology in uh, hospital settings, uh, You don't have a stable population, maybe the nurses, maybe the doctors, but they do behave differently from the general population. I know of studies which were done in the United Kingdom and in Wales, I guess that's the United Kingdom, uh, uh, with coal miners. Now you have a very stable population and you can follow them and so on. In a hospital, if I have to go in a hospital, I have only one thought. I want to get out of here as soon as possible. <laughs> mm, yep, yep. And that is a huge, huge problem. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I have studied coal miners here in the United States. I know of the studies in in England. Uh, I know of studies on steel workers And, again, you have a very stable population. It doesn't change for, literally from one day to another. So I can see the frustration. I said, but well, we don't really get good evidence that this worked and this didn't work. Of course not. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to do that. Well, that's good. But, uh, go ahead. I was going to ask Dr. Fletcher or
2: um, Dr. Nooks, can you comment on that? I, You know, that's kind of, I think, the one thing that I learned, uh, you know, that really pounded into me that I wasn't expecting is how difficult it is to you know definite, definitively determine you know x you know x equal y or whatever it is on the um, in the hospital setting
0: absolutely and you, yeah that's why you have to use these kind of proxies of redu- reduction in concentration etc um one of the other big difficulties of the hospital not only do you not have a stable population but let's say you want to look at does one technology work and does another technology not work well You you think you might have set up a a, a lovely study to look at this, and then the hospital maybe has an outbreak, say an infection outbreak. The thing is is that they don't want to say, oh, we'll we'll hold back and we'll let your study take its course. No, they they dive in there and say, well, we're going to change our cleaning regime, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and suddenly you can't separate out what you were looking at with everything else that they've suddenly jumped and done because of this incident. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I think we are getting better evidence. And I think the other really good thing that is happening is that the health authorities, certainly in the UK, are becoming much more aware that it is incredibly hard to get this evidence. So they are more willing to look at... The, the proxy evidence, the more I wouldn't say anecdotal evidence, but the, the laboratory evidence to support whether we make changes rather than perhaps going down there, the more traditional line of saying we require absolute clinical proof before we do anything different.
2: Right A causes B doesn't you don't get that many <laughs> A causes Bs, I guess in uh, in that setting. No. (laughs) Okay. All right. Dieter, I do have one more comment. We've got to let the ladies go, but uh, definitely want to get one more if you have it, because they always lead to interesting thoughts.
4: Well, no. As I said, I'm I'm very much interested in in aerosols, and for that matter, aerobiology. I don't care what it is. I I measure it, and I evaluate it, and I have done that my whole professional life, which is coming to an end, but (laughs) that's Okay. (laughs) Well, it's and, no. but, and like I said, I can see the frustration and the difficulties. And you sit there and I said, well, What else can we do? And I don't needless to say, I don't have any easy answers to very, very difficult and complex pro- problems. Yeah. So, yeah, good luck. I think we are on the right uh, uh, track. I think we all to look at ventilation which in the old days was an afterthought of uh, uh, architects and engineers. Oh, yeah, we uh, said, yeah, put a hole up in the wall and put the air in and heck with it, yeah. As long as it comes in, that, that should be all right. I designed in the, uh, in the Pittsburgh uh, Children's Hospital isolation rooms. Some of them had to be under positive pressure for obvious reasons, others under negative pressure because there were infected people in there. And it took us quite some time to to get that all going. And, well, whatever I designed is not there anymore. The children's hospital has been torn down, and they have a new one. And I have no idea whatsoever what is happening in the new uh, children's hospital. Uh,
2: Dr. Noakes, is it getting better with respect to designing ventilation into these facilities during the planning stages?
0: Yes, it is. Um Ironically, part of this is being driven by um, climate change and energy concerns. So because people are more aware of the energy consumption they're building, it is prompting at the same time people to think a lot more about how you design ventilation um, and how you you design it to be efficient, but also to to optimize the
4: comfort and, and deal with the infection risk
2: wow that's fascinating i yeah,
4: I, I, I think that is say. an excellent uh, an excellent point wow. yeah if you are having close comfort and you gotta pay for it, that is the problem. It's part of living yeah i like unlike in England, I like my beer cold, so I paid electricity to get my refrigerator <laughs> down to the right temperature, and I know I have to pay for it. And the, in, in the old, and a, a, a lot of mistakes were made with that energy conservation. Yeah, you know, they buttoned up everything and uh, let's reduce that. And that's the said. Oh my God, it doesn't work anymore. And I said, no wonder. I could have told you that before you started. So those are considerations. But like I said, if yeah, if I want to have it warm in my house, I have to turn the furnace on and I have to pay for it. I know that. Yeah. And if I want to have it cool during the summer, I throw on the air conditioner. I have to pay for that, and I think we have to have to reevaluate our thinking. And I said, "Hey guys, you can't get it for free." Now I'm all in favor of reducing the costs to something as reasonable as possible, but I can't do it for free. No, Cliff, do you have a
2: final question you wanted to get in? Uh, I don't, I'm good Alright, Then what I'd like to do is I'm going to pass the final question over to Valerie because she usually has one here
0: uh, Yeah, doctors, we like to give um, our guests the final last word so um, any last comments that you might have and also um, if you have a way for listeners to get in touch with you
2: Or a website they can visit to learn more about the uh, program at the university
0: um, okay, so uh, Kathy, I've um, I, the, the final comment um, you just made there actually brings me very nicely onto um, uh, research, a new research project that we've got starting next year. It's not focusing on hospitals, but it is focusing on ventilation and people, and it is driven by this fact that we, exactly as we've just said, that we focus at these days we focus on designing buildings around energy and around how the physical building performs, not about the people. And what we want to do is look at offices in urban environments, and we want to look at how the outdoor air and the urban environment affects the indoor air in the office, how that affects the occupants, and how we can tell them about that to allow them to optimize their their environment and actually perhaps maximize their productivity. And I've got collaborators here with um, Urban Meteorology at the University of Reading and Human-Computer Interaction down at Southampton University. Um, And we're going to be looking at this starting in March next year.
2: Thank you. And I want to thank you also for joining us. And let's let Dr. Fletcher get in any final comments.
0: Um, nothing really that, that Kath hasn't touched on. Um, just, I mean, in terms of my expertise and the fact that I'm testing lots and lots of devices, the thing that worries me, um, is that manufacturers seem to be sort of preying on people's sort of, um, over, um, they're worried about their environment and they're worried about aerosols And I think a lot of manufacturers are jumping on the bandwagon really and, producing devices that, to be quite honest, we don't actually need and sort of pandering to the um, to the public really and, and making the public a bit more um, aware of what's going on and, and, and worry about it a lot more. And I'm not sure that the majority of the environments that we, like Cass, to touch on, our environments are not necessarily dangerous uh, and the, the microorganisms that are moving around us in our day-to-day life are not necessarily dangerous and I don't think that... Um, we necessarily need all these technologies that people are um, are trying to sell, uh, some of which don't work.
2: So good old-fashioned scrubbing with soap and water or maybe a disinfectant of some type is still...
0: Open your windows, yeah, open, open your, your windows, windows and get some ventilation in and... Just make sure
2: you wash your hands and clean the surfaces. Okay. Well, that's a great way to end it. Uh, I, I do appreciate that, and I, you know, I suspect that there was going to be, you wanted to, if you would, uh, you mentioned safety issues, and I just wanted to make sure we gave you a chance, Dr. Fletcher, to mention the safety issues with respect to some of this equipment.
0: Yeah, I think I think the safety issues with UV are are relatively well known, really. Um, And and it's the same with the majority of the technologies that we look at. The reason they kill microorganisms is because they're dangerous. And we are effectively an organism. So things that are going to kill microorganisms will also damage us. So things like UV are dangerous to us, so we have to be very, very careful how you use them. Um, And it's the same with um, things like ozone and hydrogen peroxide. In high concentrations, they will kill microorganisms, but in high concentrations, they will also damage us. Um, So I think with any technology, one of the things that's come out uh, fairly recently is we've been doing quite a lot of work looking at people's devices that generate uh, hydroxyl radicals, so things that use a combination of ozone and all the things, so things that use things like de If you use any cleaning products that smell of, of lemon, they will tend to use a chemical called the limine. And if you put it in combination with ozone, it produces hydroxyl radicals. And they're very, very effective at killing microorganisms. But because of that, they're also dangerous for us. And one of the big issues with um, certainly the hydroxyl radicals is the nanoparticles that they produce. Um, and again, they can be very, very dangerous. Um so I think with all the technologies, it's, it, there's a fine balance between what's effective at killing microorganisms and what's going to um, affect and You've got to be very, very careful with what you use and, and particularly how you use it and whether it's in occupied or unoccupied spaces.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of the restoration contractors who are part of our audience are are being sold on the hydroxyl uh, generators and and being told you can be in the room while you're using this. And I don't know, I always had that in the back of my mind that, you know, do we really know that for sure?
0: Yeah, there is a lot of um, concern around at the moment about the use of um, scents, particularly de and things like that in Air fresheners, um, cleaning products, and it, it particularly centers around this, the production of nanoparticles, which, when you breathe in nanoparticles, can be very, very harmful. Um, and I know in the EU there is um, there's a directive at the moment that's going to limit um, the use of things like diethylamine in air fresheners and cleaning products, and in devices that use it in combination with ozone to generate hydroxyl radicals. And it is the nanoparticles. We've done some work, and we've looked at the same device using things like diethylamine and using hydrogen peroxide. And the big difference there's a big difference in performance in terms of their kill and that there is a huge difference in the nanoparticles. The aluminum works very, very well, kills microorganisms but generates lots of nanoparticles. Hydrogen peroxide isn't as effective but doesn't produce nanoparticles. So there's a trade-off between the good and the bad, uh, and and you've got to get that balance right, I think, for things to be safe.
2: Well, it's... it's Comforting to know that people like you and, and Dr. Noakes are working on these things, and, and we really appreciate both of you joining us this week on IAQ Radio. It's been a fascinating show, and I hope we get to talk to you again.
0: Thank you very much for having us. Uh, can I just say, if anyone does want to get in touch oh, yes. with us, if they um, search on the internet, if they search for pathogen control engineering, they will find our, our institute's web pages.
2: Pathogen control engineering. Yeah. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Dr. Catherine Oakes and Dr. Louise Fletcher for a fascinating show on hospital-acquired infections and more, which was really, I thought, great, that little icing on the cake, Val. I also want to thank my co-host, and hopefully next week I'll get rid of this uh, throat and sinus thing I've got going on here. But the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, thanks for joining us again this week.
1: You're welcome. Another very good show, too.
2: Always a pleasure, Cliff. Of course, I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow! Next week, we've got Dr. Donald Cook from the National Institutes of Health, done some interesting research recently on asthma and what types of organisms may be affecting asthma um, exacerbation and maybe even uh, asthma development. So interesting show next week with Dr. Donald Cook. I want to make sure I also thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ
0: Radio. I wanna please want to keep, want to treat your woman right. Not just over but to show that you know she is worth your time. You will lose if you choose to refuse to put her. a real man, knows a real woman When he sees
2: that Thanks to our engineer too This has been Roxy B, Val Bender production.